Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. It is the custom among the Jewish community for a weekly Torah portion to be read during the Jewish prayer service on Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. This weekly portion is called Parashat Shavuah and Hebrew and usually is abbreviated to Parashat. Um, sometimes it's known as the Sidra. The parasha is a section of the five books of Moses known as the Torah and is used in Jewish liturgy every week. There are 54 parashiot in the cycle, and it is read over the course of one year. Each Torah portion consists of two to six chapters that are read during the week. As I've already mentioned, there are 54 weekly parashiot. Torah reading mostly follows an annual cycle beginning and ending on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah, which is the last of the fall holidays. Uh, the divisions of the Torah correspond to the lunar solar Hebrew calendar. It is our pleasure each and every week to discuss the parasha with a guest. Before I introduce my guest, let me tell you that this week's parasha is known as Ki Titse, and it is found in Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 21 and continuing through chapter 25. 74 of the Torah's 613 mitzvot are in this parasha of Ki Titse. They include the laws of the beautiful captive, the inheritance rights of the firstborn, the wayward and rebellious son, burial and dignity of the dead, returning a lost object, sending away the mother bird before taking her young, the duty to erect a sent safety fence around the roof of one's home, and the various forms of uh, kilayim, forbidden plants and animal hybrids. Also recounted are the judicial procedures and penalties for sexually inappropriate behavior. The parasha also concludes laws governing the purity of the military camp, the prohibition against turning in an enslaved, uh, escaped slave, the duty to pay a worker on time, and to allow anyone working for you, man or woman, to eat on the job. It tells us about the proper treatment of a debtor, and the prohibition against charging interest on a loan. The laws of divorce, from which also are derived many laws of marriage, are spoken of in this parasha. In addition, the procedures for the yibum, the Leverite marriage the, of the wife of a deceased childless brother, <coughs> or chalitza, the removing of the shoe in the case that the brother-in-law does not wish to marry her. 
This is a very extensive listing of the laws, and the parasha concludes with the obligation to remember what Amalek did to you on the road on your way out of Egypt. With me this morning is a frequent guest of our show, a well-known rabbinic scholar by the name of Mark Levin, is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, graduated in 1971 from Boston University, magna cum laude, with distinction in religion. He received a master's of Hebrew letters from Hebrew Union College and received his ordination from the same institution. He was the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Torah in Kansas and is now the rabbi emeritus of Congregation Beth Torah. It is a pleasure to welcome him back to Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Rabbi Levin, good morning. Good morning, Rabbi Garden. This is and with, with that introduction, I, I, I want to wrestle my laurels. That's a, that's very lovely. well. Your your laurels are something you should rest on, uh, having served and having started and served a singular congregation, for which you continue to offer wisdom is certainly outstanding. Thank you. So much. Uh, and if I remember correctly, you are the author of uh, two books on Jewish liturgy and prayer. One of them is actually a sermon book, and the other is uh, easily available. It's called Praying the Bible, and thank you for remembering. Uh, well, it's my pleasure. So this week's parasha, as I mentioned, is chock full of laws. It would be impossible for us to speak about all the laws in this week's parasha, but we're going to begin uh, at the beginning of the parasha in Deuteronomy 21, and I'm going to read a little part of that. Deuteronomy 21 is the final book of the Pentateuch, the final book of Hebrew, and it's where the parasha begins. When you take the field against your enemies, uh, the eternal God delivers them into your power, and you take some of them captive. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her, and would take her to wife. You shall bring her into your home, and she shall trim your hair and pare your nails, and discard her captive garb. She shall spend a month's time in your house lamenting her father and mother. After that, you may come to know her and possess her, and she shall be your wife. Then, should you no longer want her, you must release her outright. You must not sell her for money since you had your will of her, and you must not enslave her. Well, that's certainly a very interesting treatment of a captive woman. And as we know, in today's world, uh, sexual violence against women during uh, moments of uh, conflict uh, don't appear to follow the biblical prescription. No, to say the very least, to say the very least. I, I want to note that uh, the Bible, at least in my reading, is not a systematic philosophical text, but what it is is a text that that understands the nature of being human 
and gives us corrective legislation in order to help us to perfect our character. So if you look at the first three episodes, the first of which you just read, uh, in this week's parasha, uh, we have here the captive woman. The second episode, beginning in verse uh, 15, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and it goes on to say that uh, in, in uh, the laws of inheritance, the eldest son inherits a double portion. And it may be uh, the proclivity of the male in the family not to leave to the wife of the unloved, the, to the son of the unloved wife, uh, his proper double portion, uh, even if he's the eldest. The next episode is known as the stubborn and rebellious son. The stubborn and rebellious son is the unruly child who can, whose, whose behavior cannot be managed. And the Bible says to take him out to the gate and, and uh, to stone him. And anyone who's had a teenager uh, feels that this portion of the Torah is speaking directly to them. Speaking directly to them. I want to point out that the Talmud, the fundamental law of Jewish uh, books of Jewish behavior, points out never was and never will be uh, such a child. But uh, be that as it may, we've all been in that position. Uh, let me just say that what what I want to read here about the text is the way the the rabbis the teachers of Judaism see these three episodes is not three unrelated episodes. Rather, each is the consequence of the previous one. So I want to point out here the wisdom of the Bible. What is it doing? It's saying morality is not, our, is not uh, the innate nature of the human being. If you go out to war, you may have a, a, an unfortunate uh, attraction to a woman. Well, if you are, you must treat, if you do that, you must treat her morally. You must take her into your home. You you must enable her to mourn her parents and give up her culture. You must treat her as a wife, not just as a captive with whom you're going to have your way. And if you change your mind, right? I want to particularly address this to men, right? If you change your mind after you've had your way, Okay? You can't put her aside. You can't treat her as though she's some sort of captive. Rather, you have to act towards her morally. But then in the next episode, the Bible... If, goes, if I could just interrupt before you go to the next episode, yes. the Torah seems uh, in this description in Deuteronomy to recognize that this behavior on the part of the combatant would be expected. Well, it's the very least a, a human proclivity. It is within human nature. It was when you and I were young just a couple of years ago, it was fashionable to say uh, you cannot legislate morality. Well, in point of fact, you must legislate morality. It is not human nature always to be moral. And the purpose of legislation and here the purpose of the Bible is to correct our inherent uh, nature and to make it into moral action, which is what God demands of us. And so the Torah seems to accept that the combatant would behave toward beautiful uh, women 
of the defeated side in a way that would lead the Torah to say, your normal proclivity needs to be controlled, needs to be placed within a context. Uh, Absolutely. And you cannot treat this captive woman as though she is the enemy. Correct. Right. You can't just you can't you can't rape on the battlefield. Right. Which you don't have to go too far today to see the importance of that legislation. No, I mean, if you if one reads it carefully in light of all the stories that we've heard in the last, uh, let's say, nicely 75 years of world conflict where uh, sexual exploitation and uh, and rape are known to be part and parcel of retribution. Uh, The Torah seems to recognize that that is not a a moral uh, way of life. Even if you have the rationale of this is the enemy, nonetheless, the enemy must be treated morally. Right. And as you began to speak, and I want to call this to our listeners' uh, attention, you, interestingly enough, suggested that this was not a philosophical discussion. This was not a discussion, as the Torah presents it, of the nature of human beings. This was morality. That that we have an overarching philosophy here. It says, don't do this. Correct. You have an internal mechanism that's going to say, follow your urges. Don't do that. Correct. Because urges are something that the Torah in so many ways wants to acknowledge but control yes. as a means of ex, uh, as cre- of creating a moral society. Not only moral, I want to point out, and I know you intend this, a holy society. Ah. That this is so, God's intention for us in order to be closer to God. So perhaps you could spend a few more moments about that. How is uh, moral and holy synonymous? So – you know, we've studied philosophy, the historical philosophers, beginning with the Greeks. And, and here you had the logic of the mind that wants to set up moral categories. But the Bible says, as in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God, the nature of God, is something that we are to duplicate. It's called imitatio dei, the imitation of God. And much of that, and much of this parashah, I want to point out, is in fact morality. The philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel said we, that, that we can intuit God's emotional states, but God's emotional states are moral, okay? And therefore, the role of the prophet is to understand God's emotional states and to tell us what they are, and therefore, we do those things. So in Leviticus 19, 18, it's going to say, you shall love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Okay, so what are we doing? We're becoming, we are attaching ourselves to God by imitating God's values through our behaviors. And God's values are expressed in the laws as we read them in the Torah. Exactly. And so you have here, this very next episode is you can't disinherit the child of the of the unbeloved wife 
in a society in which a, a man might have more than one wife. Why? Because you cannot treat the child of the unloved wife in, in a manner that disregards that child's status. Or you shall build a parapet around your roof. Now, this is a society where the roofs were flat, okay, and people did stuff on the roof like um, uh, winnow the grain. And so people went up to their roofs, okay, and you must protect your neighbor. I want to point out the communitarian aspect of this, that you have to take care of your neighbor. It, the the parashah goes on to say, if, if your neighbor's ass, donkey, okay, lies down under its burden, you must go and help it up. If, if your neighbor loses an animal, you must go and bring it back. If he loses an article uh, that belongs to him, you must go and take it back. Why? Because society is built on mutual cooperation and mutual responsibility. And this imitatio dei, this imitation of God's way, what is holy, is communitarian behavior. Your welfare is my welfare. And therefore, I must act for your benefit in order to be God's servant. And it's not just high-mindedness. It's the way God created the world so that we can function together as God's family. It's interesting how much of this particular section is related to family and the expansive understanding of what constitutes family as the people of Israel evolve. And as you were speaking about the discarded wife and her child, it reminded me of that uh, conflicting story about Abraham Avinu and his two wives. The first wife's really the first wife, Hagar, and the second wife, Sarah, although we could switch that around and say Sarah was the first wife, but gave birth uh, secondly, uh, and that God tells them that the covenant will uh, be inherited through Sarah's child and that Hagar and Ishmael must leave the camp. But as they're wandering in the wilderness, uh, almost in response to what we've just read, God says Hagar and her child can't be forgotten. Not they're only not going to be, be the father of an entire people. Correct. So God doesn't disinherit the child of Ishmael, but he does say that the covenant Okay, this is God's choice. The covenant will continue through Isaac. But nonetheless, uh, uh, Isaac and East and, uh, yeah. Ishmael. Ishmael will have a relationship. And historically, the two peoples will have the relationship of brothers. Right. And I, I'm struck by how this section in Deuteronomy is a continuation that the uh, child who uh, of the wife who is marginalized, who is sidelined, is not forgotten. Uh, uh, yes, and an another thing that you're pointing to, and that is that sometimes, um, as in the barren woman who gives birth to a child, we see these episodes and God's own thinking when he goes out of the natural order. So Sarai does not immediately give birth. Right. And also we're, we're, we will have other figures. Rebecca, same way. Um, uh, Rachel, same way. Hannah, same way. And their children are special 
Uh, it shows special regard from, from God. So sometimes the exception to the rule, barrenness, and then suddenly a child, demonstrates God's particular uh, uh, selection Concern. figure in order to point him out and to look at his behavior. Great. Uh, your third episode is always one that people point to uh, because it seems like a harsh lesson of parenting. Um, and you did no note that uh, later in Jewish history, the Talmud suggests that nobody ever behaved like this. Right. And we're not sure whether it's referring to the children or the parents. Or it, at least no one was ever stoned as a result. Correct. As much but as you might want to. That's right. That was the illusion that the Torah speaks such wisdom, since we've all, any of us who have had recalcitrant children, have felt the desire uh, to stone them. Um, why do you think this in particular was placed amongst these laws? So I, I believe that God places in the world natural law, and it is our job to both read them and discern them and to act accordingly, and those are primarily moral laws. So God is demonstrating to us, look, there are consequences to your actions. So you go out to war. It's a necessary war. We're all sorry about it. But you can't just act towards a woman the way your, in, your emotional inclination might be. You can't just rape her. You can't take advantage of her. Okay, so let's say you do the wrong thing. But you do bring her home and you treat her as a wife. And then some weeks, some years later, you don't like her so much anymore and you want to mistreat her child. Well, you can't do that. You can't mistreat her child just because you're, you've changed your mind. Okay. Now, so, so I want to call it the attention to, to the listeners that you made that wonderful connection between the first story and the second story. Precisely. As if the first story speaks of a wife who is a captive of a defeated people, but later in life, the uh, individual male finds a wife from his own tribe and elevates her to the status of first wife. Now, yes. there are many societies, uh, both ancient and, uh, and semi-modern, who, who believed in polygamy. It was certainly not uncommon in uh, some Asian societies for people to have first, second, and third wives, uh, even into the modern era. Uh, and they had means of dealing with that. And certainly early Mormonism believed in polygamy and had rules about how to treat people. But here, uh, the second story seems, as you've pointed out, to have a direct bearing on what came first. I took a woman, I brought her into my house, and lo and behold, later on in my life, I found somebody uh, who was from my own tribe uh, or otherwise was more appealing to me. And the consequences are twofold. One, if I want to marginalize the first wife, I have to treat her with respect, and I have to treat her child with respect. Exactly. Exactly. And then the third, let's say I don't do that. And now notice the psychology that's inherent in the biblical stories as, as though Freud had existed two, three thousand years earlier. OK, so so here the child is not treated well because of the proclivities of his wayward father. And it becomes the wayward and rebel, rebellious child. OK, then it's just pointing out, regardless of his behavior, this is not his fault. This is your fault. 
right? This is the consequences of your wayward emotions and acting upon your desires rather than, rather than proper morality. It is disruptive to society. So, so you want to know the consequences of your action? It may take 20 years, but don't do it because later on the consequences will be destructive. I'm always amazed at how the Torah seems to anticipate the kind of human dilemmas that we still wrestle with today. Each of these episodes, of which there are many more in this week's parasha, are found uh, within the uh, world that we live in right now. Absolutely. And we're still wrestling with how to respond to them. Absolutely. So interesting question you raise. Has there been an improvement? There's certainly been a technological improvement in our own day as much as ever, maybe more than ever. Okay. But has there been moral improvement? Do we have better insight? I would suggest, at least in the United States, I won't comment on Canada, okay, that the individualism that we see rampant among us and people looking out for their own welfare, quote, what used to be looking out for number one is extremely destructive of society. And now we are we are reaping the fruits of that looking out for number one rather than what the Bible says, which is your neighbor should be as beloved as yourself. Be- because the nature of that is the destruction of society in its entirety and therefore the destruction of all of us. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, right, said, if we do not all hang together, we shall all hang separately. Different circumstance, but he was right. He absolutely was right. And the Torah portion concludes with the episodes of the Amalekites, but I don't want to address our last few minutes to that. I'd like to address our last uh, few minutes together to uh, chapter 23, verse 22. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not put off fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will require it of you, and you will have incurred guilt, whereas you incur no guilt if you refrain from vowing. What was the Torah interested in here? I think because we already things. have in the Aserita de Brot, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, which we know was not about inappropriate language, but about uh, a guarantor of vows. I think it's, it's looking at a couple of things. One is, I, I think the value of words, that, you, that words do not simply have a null and void existence, that to speak is to act. Remember that God creates through speech. And speech should be as important to us uh, in in our own actions as as we read in the Bible was God's intention. They create. And so when we vow to one another, we must fulfill those vows. And when we vow to God, how much the more so that we must fulfill our intentions and to leave our intentions to go by the wayside entirely or even for a period of time is is to create a falsehood. And again, is destructive of ourselves and of our society. So when you have the impetus that says, God, save me from this and, and I will become closer to you. I will study more. I will be kinder to my neighbor. I will take care of my church or I will take care of my synagogue. When you make such a vow, I have a funny story for you. When you make such a vow, fulfill it. And don't simply wait to fulfill it. Fulfill it now. The funny story is a thousand years ago, my father had a tooth removed. And he was so 
miserable that he went to the dentist and the dentist charged him, get this, $25. And he said to my to to his mother-in-law, I don't want to pay it. It's too much money. And she said, would you have paid it when you were in pain? A great way to end. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Mark Levin of uh, Temple Beth Torah in uh, Kansas, uh, Rabbi Emeritus there for joining us and helping us understand this very uh, challenging concept of morality. Uh, you can find our show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website, and you can also find us on YouTube. Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. <laughs>